Solomon begins with a question. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. What follows now is wisdom's cry, wisdom's quote, verse 4. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of men. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They're all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold for wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of Yahweh is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil are perverted and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yields than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the paths of justice granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world." When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from Yahweh. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. This is the word of the Lord. In Proverbs 8, in... Believe me when I say that this passage, for much of church history, is one of the most well-known passages in the Bible. Christians used to turn to this passage for a description of the person of Jesus Christ before creation. In a sense, this is John 1 of the Old Testament. John 1 begins, in the beginning was the, the, the Logos, the Word, who is with God. All things were created through Him. By Him, nothing was made that has been that has, has been made. In other words, everything that was made was made through his agency. He was the creator. This matches that in the Old Testament. 
Now, this was a significant chapter in the Bible in the debate between Athanasius and Arius. And maybe you're not familiar with that debate, and so let me just give you the overarching summary of it. Athanasius was uh, pastoring a church in northern Africa, and he was a strong defender of the, the Trinity. In fact, he, was, um, he didn't invent the word Trinity, but he was one of the ones who, who mainstreamed that view. The church in Athanasius' lifetime generally believed that uh, the Father and the Son and the Spirit were three different persons in one essence, and that was a commonly held belief. So one being three different persons, and there was a lot of mystery to how those connected. And Athanasius was, uh, Lord used him in many ways, to kind of crystallize our understanding of what that means. The idea that God, we believe in one God in three persons is kind of Athanasian language. Now, Athanasius had an opponent, Arius. And Athanasius and Arius went back and forth like rivals in a sporting game. And there were times where Athanasius uh, seemed to have triumphed, like at the Council of Nicaea where he had convinced people there to sign the creed that said basically that uh, Christ is God and the nature of God. But then after Arius signed that decree, he left and said he signed it without meaning that Jesus is actually a person of the Godhead. In Arius' mind, Jesus was a created being, but he was the first of all creation. Arius had no problem calling Jesus the firstborn. By that, he meant Jesus was the first one made. Jesus was made before Adam Arius said he was made before the earth was made, but he was made. He was, of course, made. He wasn't eternal. Only God is eternal, and Jesus, or the Son of God, is not eternal. Even the name Son, Arius would argue, means that he had a beginning. He was brought into existence. And so Arius said, of course, he could sign the the Nicene Creed, what he meant by that in signing it was just simply that in the same way that we have the nature of God, we're called children of God, and so is Jesus. So when Jesus, or when Arius said that Jesus is in the nature of God, that's all he meant by that, just like you and I are in the nature of God. You're in God's image, right? As a believer, you have his spirit. That's what Arius meant by that. So Arius was tough to, to peg down because he was a strong he argued strongly in the pre-existence of Jesus before the world was made. But he argued against the divinity of Jesus simply because of his pre-existence. It's not an argument that's usually held today. I guess you, would, I mean, you have to look to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses to find that today. Athanasius ultimately triumphed. His writing was picked up by Augustine. And you know, now if somebody denies the deity of Jesus Christ, they're labeled as a heretic. They would be, belong to some kind of cultic movement. And because of that triumph, the importance of Proverbs 8 has kind of fallen by the wayside. I think many people are, are, don't often read Proverbs 8 in light of Christology, in light of the study of Jesus, because it's not so essential to our debate. But between Athanasius and Arius, this was the main passage they debated on. In their mind, this is where the argument came from. And it came specifically in two verses. Verse 22, Yahweh, the ESV says, Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his work. And so the, the overarching argument here is that Proverbs 8 is about Lady Wisdom who represents or who is the second person of Trinity, who is the Son of God. And there's, you read through Proverbs 8 like we just did, I hope you were struck by the number of things in here that are clearly divine. The, the idea that by me the world was created, and I hope you see the time change. We'll talk more about that later tonight. But in verse 24, uh, I was brought forth before the earth was there. Verse 25, before there were hills, I was brought forth. Verse 27, but when the heavens were made, I was there. 
So Arius would argue that, see, I was brought forth, I was brought into existence before the world, but when the world was made, I was already there to mean, see, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. The first created being is Jesus. That's how Arius took this. Athanasius responded with what we now know uh, as the doctrine of eternal generation. Athanasius didn't use that phrase because he wasn't writing in English, mostly. (laughs) But the doctrine, that's funny for me. (laughs) Athanasius brought forward this idea of what we call now the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. And we'll talk more about that tonight. There's all kinds of language in the entire Bible, not just in Proverbs 8, but also in the New Testament that describes Jesus as the Word of God, the image of God, the Son of God, the power of God. In other words, it describes Jesus as a a person who is distinct from the Father, a person possessing specific properties that are distinct from the Father's specific properties, although they are one being, namely Word. And as we've gone through John 1 in the morning, I've talked about this a, a lot, that the Father is the speaker and Jesus is the Word. The Father always has his word with him, and Jesus is the word, though. Jesus is the image, not the Father. He's the image of the Father, but you can't reverse those. The Father is not the image of Jesus. Jesus is the image. Jesus is the Son. The Father is the Father. You can't switch those. And Proverbs 8 is a great place to see this. This is where this doctrine, I think, is most clearly uh, revealed in the Old Testament. There's some other examples, too. I think it's clearly taught in the New Testament, specifically in John chapter 1. But in the Old Testament, to find the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son of God, you have to look towards Proverbs 8. I'll leave you a theological sentence, then we'll jump into Proverbs 8. There are distinctions in the Godhead, and those distinctions are revealed in the universe. In other words, in the pre-existent nature of God, one being, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there are distinctions between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're not the same person. They're the same being. They share the same personal substance, the same essence, but they're different persons. We don't really have an appropriate analogy for this, but you just have to have that sentence in your head. The distinctions in the Godhead are real, but you can't see or experience or learn about those distinctions until you see how the three persons of the Godhead are at work in the world. It's hard to see the nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just as they relate to each other, although there are distinctions as they relate to each other. But we experience those. We learn about those. We see them in what theologians call the economic trinity in creation, redemption, and provision, how God rules the universe. And that's where Proverbs 8 goes. Proverbs 8 goes right into the economic trinity, right into the way the trinity is seen in the world. Now I want to use more layman's language than that as we go through this passage. Tonight I'm going to give you an outline. I'll give you all four points right now, but I'll repeat them repeatedly throughout the night. So tonight I'm going to argue to you that wisdom has the power to reward. Wisdom has the power to rule. Wisdom has the power to create. And wisdom has been begotten. Let me say that one more time and then I'll repeat it every time we switch these points. Wisdom is the power to reward. Wisdom is the power to rule. Wisdom has the power to create, and wisdom has been begotten. Those are my four points. We'll start with wisdom has the power to reward from Proverbs 8. But know that my, my tone in this, I'm giving this to you knowing that for many of you, at least those that I've talked to this week in my informal survey, 
most people that I talk to about Proverbs 8 have never read Proverbs 8 in light of the deity of Jesus Christ. And so I want to be somewhat polemical. I want to argue with you tonight. I want to argue with my imaginary person right here. I'm going to picture somebody standing right here the rest of the night who's going to be telling me Proverbs 8 has nothing to do with Jesus. Proverbs 8 doesn't teach eternal generation. Proverbs 8 doesn't teach that Jesus exists. Proverbs 8 is just a, it's a story about wisdom. Hey, wisdom's nice and fun, and that's what Proverbs 8's about. Quit reading Jesus into Proverbs 8. So I'm going to argue with that person for the rest of the night. And I have four ways to rebuke him. First, the wisdom has the power to reward. Second, wisdom has the power to rule. Third, wisdom has the power to create. And fourth, wisdom has been begotten. First, wisdom has the power to reward. You notice in this passage that wisdom has inherent in her, she's personified here as a woman who's calling out, the ability to give rewards to those who come to her. Wisdom here in this passage has a desire to be in a relationship with people. There's something inside of wisdom that drives her, she's again personified here as a woman, that drives her to call out and summon. What wisdom wants here is a personal relationship with individual human beings. That's why wisdom is calling. In fact, Solomon understands this. Doesn't wisdom call? Remember what we talked about this morning, that wisdom comes from above, wisdom comes from God. Wisdom is not external to God. Wisdom is from the very nature of God. James 3, 13 through 18 make that very clear. Wisdom is not outside of God. God doesn't study wisdom and become wise. God doesn't see wisdom outside of himself and relay it to us, and we should strive to be wise because God himself uh, is trying to be wise. Also, no, wisdom is from the nature of God. It's inside of God. So Solomon, who's writing wisdom literature, writing the book of Proverbs, which is the, the kind of the crown jewel of wisdom literature, telling you how to lead a wise life, it would be very important for Solomon to know where wisdom comes from. Agreed? He's writing the book of Proverbs, which is how to lead a wise life. And so Solomon better be able to answer the kind of question that James answers in James 3, that wisdom comes from above. It comes from the nature of God. And Solomon answers that question. I mean, Solomon exists before Jesus took on human flesh, before Jesus was born. Solomon's in the Old Testament. Solomon had not encountered Jesus Christ, the person living on earth. Obviously, that hadn't happened yet. Solomon's an ancestor of, of Jesus. If Solomon was writing the New Testament, he would sound very much like James 3 or John 1, I'm sure of it. But in the Old Testament, he personifies wisdom as this person, this, this attribute coming from God. And what is the chief way Solomon is introduced to this attribute of wisdom? By this desire to be in a relationship. How does Solomon learn wisdom? Do you remember in real life how Solomon learned wisdom? And what happened to him? Remember, he had, the, he had the dream and God said, what do you want? And Solomon had a, a, a great answer. And so God said, I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to give you riches and I'm going to give you a, a strong kingdom. I mean, God gave Solomon wisdom. Solomon, the wisest king in, in that sense in the Old Testament, decreed by God, received his wisdom through direct revelation from God. And he's trying to pass it along to us, which Solomon did to varying degrees of ability throughout his life, right? <laughs> I mean, you could write a whole book on whether or not Solomon was a, a true follower of the Lord, and you would call that book Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon. And so you see the problem we have right away. But Proverbs 8, when he's talking about the source of wisdom, look at how he begins it. Doesn't wisdom call to you? Doesn't God want wisdom to go out? 
doesn't understand, raise her voice. Now in Proverbs 7, there's the lady of the nights. There's the woman folly. There's the adulterous woman in Proverbs 7. And she also wants to trap people, but she is not wandering in broad daylight. She's not summoning people in the marketplace. In Proverbs 7, the lady folly, she is lurking in the shadows, trying to pick off unsuspecting and naive people. What a contrast with wisdom. She doesn't operate in the darkness, wisdom. She is out there in the light, yelling, summoning, saying, come to me. She desires a relationship. She, like Jesus Christ, does not just call the wise. She calls the naive. This is surprising in verse 5. Oh, simple ones, learn prudence. Oh, fools, learn sense. She wants to be, Lady Wisdom here, wants to be in a relationship with people that don't yet know her. To the fools, as Jesus would say, he doesn't come, he comes as a doctor, not for the healthy, but for the sick. So does wisdom. Wisdom wants to be in a relationship with you, and when you are in a relationship with her, you experience her holiness. Verse 6, Hear, for I will speak noble things, royal things. A a synonym of this word in Hebrew would would be purity. From my lips will come what is right or righteousness. This speaker, this wisdom, she presents. She possesses nobility. She possesses moral purity. She hates wickedness in verse 7. Verse 8, all the words of my mouth are righteous. There's a moral quality of righteousness that belongs to God and God alone that wisdom possesses. A critical point to understand who wisdom is here. She possesses the righteousness of God and she speaks it. It flows from her mouth. There is nothing twisted or crooked in any of her words. And they are straight to him who understands. And they're right to those who find knowledge. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus said. The disciples come to Jesus and say, how come not everybody understands what you're saying? (laughs) And he says, so the scripture is fulfilled. The hearing they wouldn't understand, perceiving they wouldn't perceive, they wouldn't believe. But to those with understanding, Jesus says, The secrets of the kingdom are given to you. And that's so it is with wisdom. Those who don't have ears to hear do not understand. But to even the foolish person who turns to wisdom, her paths will be made straight. They will find knowledge. And this is what I mean by reward in verse 10. If you had to choose between wealth and wisdom, choose wisdom. It's better than silver. It's better than gold. This is like Psalm 19 about the word of the Lord, which is better than gold, better than honey from the honeycomb. I mean, get that, David says. <laughs> you got a choice from honey, from the honeycomb, dripping with honey. Choose the word of God. Solomon says the same thing. Wisdom is better than jewels, verse 11. All that you desire does not compare to her. This is ringing of Job 28. It's another book in the wisdom literature, the middle of the book of Job. Job says there's a mine for silver, there's a mine for gold. You can get all kinds of crazy things out of the mountain, but where can you mine wisdom from? And Job answers, and the, the narrator of Job answers at the end of chapter 28, says it only comes from God. God alone gives you wisdom and it is better than anything you get from a mountain. And getting wisdom makes you morally pure. It purifies your life and it gives you a spiritual reward. This section here should remind you of Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, Yahweh calls out to people and he says, come, come to the waters. Come and drink. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come, if you don't have any money, come to the Lord. 
come. If you're hungry and you can't buy righteousness, you can't buy food, come to Yahweh and he gives it. He gives you wine. He gives you milk. He gives you wine and milk without money and without costs. And then he asks, why do you spend your money on that which does not satisfy? If you're starving, don't buy a lottery ticket with your money. (laughs) Come buy food. You don't have money? Come to the Lord. Don't labor for what doesn't feed you. Listen to me, Isaiah says. Yahweh speaking to Isaiah. Listen to me and I will feed you. Listen to me and I will help you do good and you will delight yourselves in me, God says. Incline your ear and come to me and your soul will live. I mean, it sounds like he's practically quoting Proverbs 8. Listen to me, God says, and I will reward you. By the way, verse 12 starts the I passages. Verse 12, you kind of go from the quote of wisdom to now wisdom speaking of herself in the first person. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. And then the theme of Proverbs, the fear of Yahweh is the hatred of evil. Wisdom understands that. Wisdom is rooted in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. Well, first, wisdom is the power to reward. That sounds a lot like God to me, but hey, wisdom is the power to reward. Secondly, Wisdom is the power to rule. Wisdom is the power to reward. Wisdom also has the power to rule. And this gets picked up in verse 14. Notice this. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. Wisdom has this perception that gives it force. This is more than just like being a good reader of people. This is more than discernment. Wisdom here is saying, I have strength because of what I know. Now, what does wisdom do with its strength? How do you see that? I mean, is it just talking about like, oh, if you're holy, you'll be a stronger person than your next door neighbor? I don't think so, because look at what wisdom does with their strength. Verse 15, by me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. What wisdom is saying here is because I possess wisdom, I can raise up kings. This is repeated, by the way, in 1 Chronicles 29, Isaiah 40 where God brings kings to the throne. New Testament version, this is Romans 13. There is no authority except by God. And those who reign do so because God has instituted their leadership. That's true in the United States. That's true in England. That's true in the most barbaric Venezuela. Those who are in control are there because God has placed them there. For better or worse, and often for worse, Even though the wrong off seems so strong, God is the ruler yet. And this is the force of wisdom. She says, I am the one who puts kings on the throne. A very strong claim of divinity. She has the power to establish rulers. They love those, wisdom loves those who rule by her authority. By me, verse 16, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Another passage picked up in the New Testament quoted by Jesus about himself. I love those who love me and those who seek me will diligently, seek me diligently will find me. This is the promise of wisdom. She not only has the power to reward, but she has the power to rule and she meets that rule out through kings and sovereigns in this world. You go back to the reward again in verse 18. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. My yield better than choice silver. Again, she rewards you. This is the power to rule. Thirdly, wisdom is the power to create. 
wisdom is the power to create. And you see this down in verse 20, all the way down, really all the way through verse 31. Verse 20, I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice. So I walk in the way. Wisdom is not saying I followed the pattern that God has set out for me. Wisdom is saying this belongs to me. This path is my path. The way of life is my path. The paths of justice belong to wisdom. Wisdom can use that to grant an inheritance to those who love me. In other words, understand why this is about the, about the second person in the Trinity here. Only he can say, if you love me, you have eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus alone can say that. And he's repeating that here in the form of wisdom. I grant an inheritance to those who love me. But she has more than the power to create and give eternal life. Look at what else she does. We're going to skip the uh, verses 20 through 22 for a second. We'll get back to that. Verse 23, you're going to talk about creation. Ages ago, I was set up. At the first, before the beginning of the earth. Here's a place where Arius was right. Jesus definitely exists before the creation of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the, field, the earth with his fields or the first dust of the world, that phrase, dust of the world, is, you've heard the, we have an expression in English, That's old, that guy's older than dirt. Have you heard that expression? It's coming from this. This is quoting, hey, you're quoting Proverbs 8. What does that mean, you're older than dirt? Well, it means you're older than Adam. How is Adam made? Out of dirt. And so here, wisdom is saying, before Adam was made out of dirt, I was there. I was there. In other words, I pre here's a strong argument that wisdom is not invented by people, because wisdom existed before Adam even. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, here's a little window that the Old Testament understood. Lady Wisdom obviously understands the earth is spherical. When he made the skies from above, established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limits. Verse 30, I was beside him. What's Wisdom doing there? Just hanging out? Watching, front row seat? Go, God! Woo! More starfish, those are cool. Make more of those. I mean, that's what the angels are doing. Job says the angels were applauding at creation. The angels were clapping. What was Jesus doing? He wasn't just hanging out. He, he, she here, Lady Wisdom, or Jesus, was assisting. He was at work. Dwayne Garrett, in his commentary, and I'm, I'm quoting him. He's a professor at Southern Baptist Seminary. I'm quoting him because he does not agree that Proverbs 8 is, a, is about uh, Jesus here. But he notes this. Quote, wisdom is claiming to be the first principle of the world and the pattern by which the world was created. And that's true. Wisdom here is claiming that she is the one who is creating the world. The time change in verses 24 and 27 is critical. I was brought forth. I wasn't existing before the world created, but when the world began to be created in verse 27, I was already there. Let me give you a simple theological principle. Everything fits into one of two categories. You ready for my two categories? Everything fits into one of two categories. God and not God. Do you buy that? It's true. It's the creation-creator distinction. Creature-creation distinction. You're either God or you're not God. And we, by the way, are all in the, the second category. We're in the not God category. What category is wisdom in here? Creating the world. Not, not created, but creating the world. The simple principle, anything uncreated is God. Wisdom here has the power 
to create according to the righteousness and the wisdom of the Father. And this all leads to the fourth point, which is the main point tonight. Wisdom is the power to reward, the power to rule, the power to create. And finally, fourthly, most important, wisdom has been begotten. Begotten. Now, the word begotten is not a word we often use, unless you have the King James Bible. And then you've got all the begats in the Old Testament. But that's an important point, because that word that's translated begat in the Old Testament is this word here. And you wonder, maybe you memorized the song, all the begats song. Um, cool thing to do. What does the word begat mean? Does it mean fathered? Like it's often translated in the, in the more modern translations. Yes, kind of, but it's not just fathered. It's this idea of bestowing existence, bestowing life, begetting, that you're, you're, you're causing to, to be. You're causing to exist. It's not really temporal as much as it is you're giving your life to this person. You're, you're bringing this person into existence. It doesn't really have a start or an end. It's just a strange, unusual word. And I submit to you, it's strange and unusual because it's your little window into the Trinity here. You see this word in verse 22 and verse 25. In verse 22, look carefully. Yahweh possessed me is how the ESV translated it. But that word possessed, it is that word for begotten. Quina is the, the Greek word. It's the same word in Genesis 4.1 for Adam knew his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have begotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Another, and even there, it's a cool turn of phrase that Yahweh worked with Adam and Eve to bring this life into existence. That's begetting. That's the word that's used here in verse 22. Yahweh, beget me. And what do you do with that? If you don't want to use the word beget in your translation, what do you do with that word? Uh, apparently possessed is one option. <laughs> but it doesn't really mean possessed. There's some places in the Old Testament, I think four or five verses in the Old Testament, where this could be translated as like acquired, that God or that a person bought something, like procured it as their own possession. But most of the time this word is used, beget is the idea that life is given. And this word, the way it's translated in the ESV, it's hard to see, the Yahweh possessed me at the beginning. In the Hebrew, the next word after possessed is the word for first. Yahweh possessed me first. Yahweh possessed me before all the other stuff, before his acts of old, the rest of the verse says. Now, if you take those two words together, you know what words you get? <laughs> Beget me first, you get first begotten or only begotten, which is the word back in John 1. I'm telling you, so much of John 1 is from Proverbs 8, that Jesus is the, the only begotten son of God. The monogenesis is the Greek word, the, the, the sole existence the special, the first, the unique is how it's often translated in John 1.18. The unique son of God. Here in the middle of this passage, you get this teaching that the father begets wisdom. The father begets Jesus. Now, here is where you have to have the doctrine of what's called the doctrine of eternal generation. And it's not, this is where Arius was wrong. Arius said, see, because Yahweh beget wisdom and wisdom clearly is the second person of the Trinity, therefore Jesus had a beginning. But it does not say that. It doesn't say he had a beginning. In fact, if you look carefully at this, it says he did not have a beginning. <laughs> that he was already there. 
And it's such a contradiction, isn't it? In verse 24 and 25, verse, verse 27, I was brought forth. There's that word again. I was, I was beget, I was brought forth. Verse 25, I was again beget, brought forth. Verse 27, I was already there when God made the world. How is that possible? How could he both be begotten and existent eternally? That's the doctrine of eternal generation. And I've explained it different ways, but I, wanted, I, I, I want you to have this in your mind. I don't think this is just like pie in the sky, ivory tower theology. I think it's very helpful for you in your relationship with Jesus Christ to understand this truth. That the begetting of Jesus is something that never started. There was never a time where the Son didn't exist. This is what's meant by God being our eternal Father. He's always been a father. And you can't be a father unless you have a son or a daughter, but speaking or lady wisdom in this sense, but you cannot be the father unless you have the son. So if God is the eternal father, then Jesus must be the eternal son. Or there was a time when God wasn't father. And so the begetting that's used in Genesis 4 to describe of you know, people giving life to their children, there's that same concept. The son is the image of the father. The son is the word of the speaker. He's the light of the, of the source of the light, the illuminator. But the light switch was never turned on. It's always been on. The father has always had his word with him. The son has always been the son. Losing that doctrine leads to all kinds of craziness in how you think about God. If you get rid of eternal generation, then you're stuck with this idea that you, you can't understand how God can be one being in three persons. How do they relate to each other? What's their difference? And you're just kind of grasping. What does it mean that he's father? I guess it means we can pray to him as father and that Jesus is son, that he was born on earth. And you think in those terms that Jesus' sonship is that he was born to Mary. But that's not what makes him son. He was son before he was born to Mary. He's the son, the eternal son of the father without beginning. And that's why you see here this eternality of this in verse 22. I think it's packaged in verse 22. This was Athanasius' main argument against Arius, that Yahweh possessed me, Yahweh beget me at the beginning of his work. In other words, it was, it was happening even then. The first of his acts of old, before he did anything else, the begetting was already taking place. He's always been the son. And then you see the language change. It was, I was brought forth in verse 24. Clearly this idea of eternally being generated. Verse 25, the, before the mountains have been shaped, I was again brought forth. Jesus was there. And this is not reversible. Jesus does not beget the father. Jesus does not bring forth the father. The father brings forth Jesus without beginning. When he established the heavens, verse 27, I was already there. And here's your first time stamp. Your first time stamp. The first moment of creation. And Jesus is already there. Already there. What's he doing, by the way? Let's look at verse 31. Rejoicing in what God was doing. Verse 29, he assigned to see its limits. The water might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was, and this phrase, beside him, this idea is in the Father's bosom. That's the way Jesus renders it in John. He was, again, most modern translations get rid of that language. You don't want the word, you know, in the Father's bosom in your translation, but that's what the, it is in the New Testament. And that's this language here. The, the Son, wisdom, was with the Father, beside the Father, but close to the Father's heart. And what's their relationship like? There was this rejoicing in verse 31. There was a delight. 
This is Trinitarian. Nobody else can say this. The Father took delight in the Son in eternity past. The Son took delight in the Father in eternity past. A term delight even I think alludes, you don't get this here, but you get this in other passages, alludes to the existence of the Holy Spirit. There's a relationship between the Father and the Son which would require a third person. A thir- and remember, because remember our categories, God and not God. <laughs> so you have the Father and you have the Son and there's some kind of relationship between them. That relationship is, it's not created. So that relationship has to be expressed in a person of God as well. That's the doctrine of eternal generation. There's no beginning to this that's always existed that way. The takeaway is that the Son of God delights in the Father. And that's why wisdom can say this, and now, O sons, listen to me. Verse 32, blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise. Don't neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from Yahweh. Just let that hit you for a second. Whoever finds me finds eternal life and favor from Yahweh. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. I mean, this is a narrow gate, isn't it? (laughs) There is one way to eternal life, and it is through Lady Wisdom, or another way of saying it. There is one way to eternal life, and it is through God. It is through God. Well, am I making too much of Proverbs 8? I don't think so. Because you see this language, again, as I mentioned, Proverbs 8 is quoted in the New Testament. It's alluded to in the New Testament. The New Testament identifies the Son of God as wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24. Let me read that to you real quick. We talked about that verse this morning, but 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24. To those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Where did Paul get that phrase? (laughs) Obviously, Proverbs 8. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, a few verses later, because of him, speaking of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. A really interesting word that comes from Proverbs 8, verse 30. It's translated, Revelation 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this, the words of the amen. (laughs) The words of the amen? Since when Jesus started his prayers, he didn't end his prayers with amen, he started them with amen, because he's God, he can do that. But Revelation, the word, here's the amen is speaking. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from Proverbs 8, verse 30. I was beside him. I was daily his delight. That phrase beside him, that's the amen. Transliterated into Greek, here's the amen is speaking. The one who's beside Jesus is speaking, or the one beside the Father is speaking. Colossians 1 picks up the same truth. Colossians 1 verse 15. There Paul says that Christ Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That phrase firstborn, it's so ingrained in our vocabulary that we lose sight of what it means. It does not mean like Arius says that Jesus had a beginning. It does mean like Proverbs 8 says that he has always existed from the Father. That's what it means that he's firstborn. Not just that he's special, although he is special, but that's not what firstborn means. It doesn't only mean that he's the only son. 
because you see that phrase elsewhere used of somebody with multiple sons. It doesn't even mean they have multiple sons. He's the first one born, like Abraham. Yet Ishmael, yet Isaac is called the firstborn. It means that he is unique, and it's taking it from Proverbs 8. There is nobody else who's existed in eternity with the Father other than the Son. That's Colossians 1, verse 15. It goes on, though. He's the firstborn of all creation. Notice verse 16 is, again, drawn from Proverbs 8. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. There's your, your categories again. Even the invisible things were created by the first begotten son, of, first begotten son of God. Whether thrones or dominions, again, the same categories from Proverbs 8, thrones and dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And why is this practical? Because what's the next verse say? And he is the head of the church. He is the one whom we worship. So what are you practically supposed to do with this in your life? I want you to try to understand, which you'll never be able to do in this world. You just try to in this life. Try to understand the nature of the Trinity when we speak of a father and a son and a spirit. What we mean is that the father is the source. The father is first. The son, the father begets the son eternally with no beginning. The Son who is eternal is begotten by the Father. That's why he's called the Son. And together, the Father and the Son rejoice and love and have a spiritual relationship, which is identified as the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. When we call the Trinity the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are not names pulled out of a hat at random. Those names, Father, Son, and Spirit, speak to the relationship between the three members of the Trinity to each other. Why does that matter? Because how do you experience God? How are you introduced to God? Certainly, you see through creation, which was made Father through the Son, while the Spirit hovered over the waters. Certainly, it's through redemption. The Father sent the Son to the earth. The Son led a sinless life, died on the cross for your sin, and then the Holy Spirit draws you to Him. That's how you're introduced to the Trinity. That's how you're introduced to Jesus Christ. And so you understand the nature of the father-son-spirit relationship. It spills over out of eternity past into the gospel and into your heart and into the way you relate to God. This is why rejecting the Trinity is a huge deal. Because if you reject the Trinity, you are losing the ability to relate to God as he is. You're losing the ability to relate to God through the gospel because the gospel comes to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're grateful that you are not some kind of mediating spirit between God and creation. We're thankful that you, you were not just made before the, before the earth and then made the earth, but we're thankful that you yourself are the maker of all things because you are eternal. James asks us who is wise, and from that we want to pursue you. We know that wisdom comes through you and the gospel and your word, so we pray that you would make us wise. We know that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, and that's seen in how we relate to your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, give our hearts love for the gospel. 
Help us tremble in your presence. Help us strive to understand what is not comprehensible. We know the secret things belong to Yahweh, and yet, Yahweh, you've chose to reveal them in mitigating fashion to us. And so, Lord, we want to spend our life, we want to spend eternity, really, striving to know you better. We pray that you would help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.